Thanks, Pastor Matt, for leading us in song as we continue to worship our awesome God. As we continue on in our sermon series in Malachi, looking at the minor prophets, we're going to be in chapter 2, verses 6 to 10. And as we do that, as you open up your Bible, you know, something that, uh, that is really fun in life are weddings. Right now, I'm walking with a couple through some premarital counseling and um, as they get ready to say those wonderful I do's. And it's great to see a couple getting ready for this as they prepare for those vows, as they make these vows before each other, before those who are watching, but more importantly, towards God, to be faithful to one another forever. But that's not always the case, is it? The plot of the romance movie doesn't always come true. It's not always happily ever after, is it? Now we live in a fallen world where I do becomes I don't. Most families have been touched one way or another by divorce. It's painful. It's guilt-ridden. It's, it's full of shame and sorrow. And whatever the reason is for the marriage to break down, it's all of those emotions that make divorce a hard topic. And even as I'm talking about it now, many are going through their own emotions and many are thinking of all those whom they love who are walking or have walked through that. It is a hard topic to talk about. But when it comes to the Bible, it is tempting to skip over certain passages because they are hard because they bring up all of those emotions that are within us. But, as, but God is a loving Father, and as a loving Father, He speaks to this area as much as He does to any other area in our lives, with words of warning and challenge, but also with grace and mercy. So if you have your Bibles with you, please open them. And we're going to be in Malachi chapter 2. And we'll be reading from verses 10 all the way to chapter, verse 16 of chapter 2. And it says this, the word of the Lord says this, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and he has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendants of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. Verse 13. And this second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let not, uh, sorry, let not, and let not of you, none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. 
For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we come to continue to worship you through the opening of your word. And God, as we get into this passage, it is a difficult passage. Lord, I pray and I know that this is still your word and that all of your word is useful for teaching and for rebuking and for encouraging your saints. So Lord, I don't have the ability to do this on my own. So by your spirit, Lord, will you use this sermon to glorify your name? Will you use this sermon to uh, not only encourage the saints, but to call people to yourself and to convict us of sin? May it be used for the joy of your people and the salvation of the lost. And amen. God is going to be talking about two topics that are related to marriage in this passage. What's happening is that men are choosing to marry women from outside of God's family, outside of God's covenant people, outside of the covenant community. We see this in verse 11. And they were divorcing their wives too. We see that in verse 14. These two situations are related, as we will see, come to life in, in these verses. See, I need to communicate this. That as I studied this passage this week, I was faced more with the reality of the difficulty of this passage. It's not difficult because it's hard to understand. It's difficult because of the emotions that are tied to this topic. But as we do that, let's talk about something first. We need to understand this word covenant. What is covenant? What is a covenant? So generally speaking, a covenant is a promise between two or more parties to, to perform certain actions. The word can also be used as a verb. You can use it like we covenant to work together uh, to finish this project. A covenant is very similar to a promise. The idea of covenant is very important in the Bible. So that's why it's important to understand what the word means. It's not a word that we often use in our language today, but it is important for us because it's important in the Bible. In fact, the word testament is otherwise known as covenant. So in the Bible, we have an old covenant and a new covenant. We have an old testament and a new testament. Covenant was a well-known idea within the ancient world. The covenant could be made between two equal parties, but it could also be made between a king and his subject, someone who's greater than the other. The king would promise certain protections and the subjects would promise loyalty to the king. A covenant might be conditional or unconditional. But as we look at that, as we look in these first two verses of verses 10 to 12, we will see the unfaithfulness to the covenant brings a broken brotherhood. In verses 11, in verse 10, sorry, it starts off by showing the character of who God is. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us all? And you see God's intentive care and his very presence with these people. He, the God who created the universe, is these people's father, an intimate relationship. 
But as we continue on, he begins to ask other questions. If, if he is our father, why then are we betraying each other as brothers? As he says, why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Why is this happening? See, God is being pictured as one who is attentive in his care, but now he wants to point his, his attention, our attention on his people. Judah has been faithless, as verse 11 says. An abomination has been committed in Israel. You kind of picture it this way. You can see how the, the first questions in verse 10 are kind of bringing the people along and being like, yeah, what's going on? Like, I know we're like, people are being mean to one another. You know, how dare they? What is happening? And then Malachi becomes, he, he changes the questions again. And now he brings this giant spotlight upon the sins of all the people. Judah, he says, Judah has been faithless and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of God. So whatever has been happening has been so bad that it has tainted the very sanctuary of the Lord. And why does God love the sanctuary so much? It is because this is where God meets with men, with humankinds. And they have tainted it. And God loves to be with his people. As it says, which he loves. But then he comes and says, how has the people done this? He has married the daughter of a foreign God. See, something to remember here is that this is not about race or necessity of the spouse but because of the competing spiritual commitments that a person would bring to a marriage. You have two groups of people trying to become one, and it's impossible. You have one who's claiming to be a people of God, and another group coming into that marriage saying, we are not of the people of God, we are hostile to God, and now we're going to try and make the most intimate relationship possible. It's impossible to have that. See, spiritually faithless marriages have far-reaching consequences. Far-reaching consequences that the people haven't been thinking about as they've been just marrying whomever they want, whoever they want. These are daughters of a foreign god. The problem is that the spouse has a different spiritual father so how can they have a complementing view on anything? How to raise children, how to live together, how to interact with people, what to do on a Sunday morning? As he continues on in this passage, God comes and he, he gives this very stark warning. He says, anyone who betrays his covenants will be excluded from it literally be cut off, it will be excommunicated. This is the same word uh, that is used for excommunication. It is a, a, a putting outside of the family of God. These people will no longer be able to bring worship. They, they, they bring worship like, like there's nothing wrong. 
like they've done nothing wrong, like they haven't broken God's covenant, like God hasn't already told them back in Deuteronomy not to do the very thing that they are doing. And not because God wants to be a jerk, and not because uh, there's some sort of idea here that God wants to kind of control things, but because he is their father and he loves them and he wants the best for them. And he knows that you can't have two people coming together who profess two different faiths and, and establish an intimate relationship. Because the most intimate relationships are connected spiritually. And that is impossible to happen if they have different fathers. See, Judah's unfaithfulness to the covenant uh, began to affect their relationships with one another as they had these complete competing views and competing faiths people began to compromise and it wasn't the the foreign god the daughters of the foreign gods it was the men who were claiming to be of the covenant who began to compromise even though they were the people who were called out they had been unfaithful to the covenant that was made with god that unfaithfulness began to affect the relationships and the same is with us today there is this temptation for someone who is looking for a spouse and not finding one within the boundaries of that covenant community without finding one within the church not finding that marriage um, marriage what's the word here marriage uh uh meritable that's not the word this marriage material is the word. I can't find that one of marriage material. And then the, the temptation comes to, to look outside the church. You know, meanwhile, hey, you know, there's that good looking person at, 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 who works across from me in the cubicle next door to me. And a pretty good looking person. We get along really well. We laugh a lot. We, we have a good time together. You know, they're not really hostile to church. You know, maybe, maybe they could be somebody who I can have a marriage and a relationship. Why shouldn't I date that person, you may begin to ask. And Malachi's response is incredibly blunt. So to marry someone outside of that believing community is faithlessness to God. It, it profanes, the, profanes the, 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 the covenant that is made, as it says in Malachi 2, verse 10. And if we have no possible intention of marrying that individual, then why we have no business in dating them either. So why is God making this such a big deal? And I'm going to give you three reasons. The first one is this. You're shortchanging the marriage. Marriage is intended to be much more than just having someone to come home to and, and sit with and, and watch Netflix with. It's meant to be much more than that. Marriage is intended to be a spiritual union in which we share the deepest longings and aspirations of our hearts with our spouse. The point is this, a Christian can't possibly connect at the deepest level of the soul with someone who doesn't share that same life in Christ. There will be a profound area of existence that is permanently shut off from that person. The second is this, you are shortchanging your children. As God points out in this passage is that one of the purposes of marriage is to have kids. And parenting is designed to be a team project, not a, a, a team project, not an individual sport. 
and children will model themselves on both parents for better or for worse. I pray every day that is for the better and not the worse, but sometimes I feel like it's more worse. See, both parents should enter their worlds daily, guiding them with biblical correction and infusing their lives with profound understanding of grace. Parenting is hard. It is so hard. And how hard must it be to raise godly children if you're doing it alone? See, at best, your spouse, if, it, if he or she doesn't share the same faith as you, at best, they're neutral. But they're probably subconsciously subverting that faith in their kids. But there's something amazingly free about that as well, though, that God still is the one who calls people to himself. Even though God uses godly marriages to, to infuse uh, faith inside of, of children, God still is the one who calls people to himself. But the third reason is this, and this is probably the most important. We are shortchanging our own faith. We all have to compromise our wish list, right? You know, sometimes, uh, I remember when I was in high school, uh, I don't know how many times someone would be like, hey, have you come up with a wish list of a spouse that you want to marry? What is on your wish list? And as, a, as an older teen and as a college student, I must admit that the most important was not on the list. But God comes here in Malachi and says that the first and most important thing on that list, really the only one that matters, is faith. If, if the answer of faith is not answered, if the question of faith is not answered, then none of the other attributes matter. They could be the nicest person in the world, greatest looking guy who is super nice and walks like a million uh, old ladies across the street and helps at the soup kitchen and, and donates time and money and, you know, all of those things. But if he does not share the same faith as you, you're shortchanging your marriage. So what's... Where does faith fit on your lists? You know, when it comes to my kids, to my daughters specifically, I haven't really talked to Caleb about this, but to my daughters, I've said to them all the time, and if you ask them to this day, what does your dad care about most in who you marry? And they will respond that he loves Jesus more than me. Because I know that if a man loves Jesus more than them, he will care for my daughter. Like, he will care for my daughter like Christ cares for his church. Faith matters. It's the most important thing. And, 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 and most important of all things, we are shortchanging our own faith when we marry outside of the believing community. See, the men in Malachi's day weren't just dating and marrying the wrong people. They were compounding that sin by also divorcing their wives in order to do so. So in verses 13 to 16, we see that the unfaithfulness to the covenant being broken, uh, sorry, unfaithfulness to the covenant brings broken marriages. 
See, in verse 13, it says the second thing is this. You cover the Lord's altar with tears. These people were coming with this idea that their pious position before God, that their, their, that their, their, their pious worship was good, and God rejects it, and he gives them another reason. He, as they ask, they ask, well, why does he reject our worship? And God comes and says in verse 14, because I was a witness between you and your wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. See, God was a witness. You can picture a father walking his daughter down the aisle on that wedding day. He is standing there as a witness between these promises, between these vows that have been made. And he is angry at the men for what they are doing. The wife of their covenant. This is a type of relationship like a deepness of an ally or a close friend that has existed for years. And these men have given up that relationship for years to go and marry someone else. See, in the context of God's original intent in verses 15 and 16, in God's original intent for marriage, just as God's people as a whole are bound together by their one God and Father, so God makes a human couple one and seals their unity by giving a portion of his spirit to them. Marriage is defined by the one God in covenant with his ideally unified people with, who ideally produce children who continue to be spiritually unified in a covenant community. And divorce betrays all of that. Divorce betrays the picture that marriage is to reflect of God and his people. So God calls on the people, on the men, to guard themselves, warning at the deepest level against this betrayal. Why? Because God is strongly opposed to divorce. And they were compounding that sin by divorcing their original wives to do this. See, there's no law in the Old Testament that says you're not allowed to. So God comes and he, he lays out these rules of 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 when divorce is possible. We see this in Deuteronomy 22, where a man who lies against his wife about her immorality is not allowed to divorce. God is protecting the woman because in the context of the history, a woman had no power. They were unable to, to go and, and to separate from their husbands and to find an apartment and to try to build a new life for themselves. If they left, at best, they would often have to leave their children behind and go back in disgrace to their parents. But often, at worst, they could find themselves out in the streets with no one to protect and care for them. The opposite of what happens here, even in verse 16, this picture of a garment being laid over someone. The husband was to protect his wife, and in divorce, that was no longer being happening. The promise has not been happening. And, and, and what's happening in Malachi's day is that men were divorcing their wives for no reason at all, which the Lord condemns. In verse 16, it says that, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. When the man was divorcing his wife, he was condemning her to a dismal life of second-class uh, second citizen 
in society. And, and this idea of divorce represented uh, faithful, faithlessness to the covenant commitment that they had originally made to their wives to love and protect them. The breaking of promises represented faithlessness to, to the God before whom they had made those vows. And what makes it so worse what makes it worse is the goal of divorcing their wives and marrying these other women is 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 financial and social benefit as as they then went out all sorry as they went out to marry remarry pagan women who were better connected in the business and political worlds the decision made perfect sense according to their own logic but it's amazing how when we don't apply our logic to the word of God, how we can construe things and how we can mess things up. In the beginning, marriage was intended by God to be an exclusive relationship for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness or in health, until death do us part, to quote the vows that many take on their marriage day. But in Matthew 19, Jesus teaches us on divorce. You see, the Pharisees come and they ask Jesus this very specific question about, is it lawful for a person to divorce his wife? This is in Matthew 19, verse 3. This question reflects a debate in, in Jesus' time about exactly what does the passage in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 mean? When it says some indecency is what allows a man to divorce his wife. Some uh, some rabbis were teaching that, that, that indecency had to do with the s- sexual immorality, while other rabbis were pr- teaching that, that indecency could be anything, including how you burnt your husband's food that day. But Jesus comes along, and this is the amazing thing, Jesus comes along and he completely skips over that question and he goes right to the heart of the issue. And he goes back and he quotes Genesis 2 verse 24. And he points out that since God makes two people one through marriage, humans should not separate those whom God has joined together. But then the Pharisee had an understandable follow-up question. If divorce is so contrary to God's goal of marriage, then why did Moses command, command someone to give his wife a certificate of divorce and then send her away? This is in verse 7 of Matthew 19. And Jesus' response was to affirm that Moses allowed, not commanded, divorce because of the hardness of fallen human hearts, but that in the beginning it was not so. He also talks about that often the outcome of such divorce actually leads to further sin. Clearly Jesus strongly emphasized the sacredness of the marriage bond, while at the same time acknowledging that in a sin-stained world, divorce is sometimes a necessary recognition of a sad reality. The Apostle Paul even talks about divorce in, in 1 Corinthians verse 7. What other dimensions about divorce and different situations that existed in the Corinth church See, the biblical teaching on divorce 
in all of these different passages is both simple and complex. Like I said at the very beginning, this passage is not hard to understand, but it's still hard because it, it affects our hearts. It's simple because the Bible teaches us that divorce is never the right end for a marriage. It's very clear. Divorce is the tragic end of something that God created to be seamlessly whole. It is the result of a hard heart, sinful acts and attitudes, and an outcome that falls short of, 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 of and departs from God's goal in marriage. It departs from the picture that marriage is to point, uh, to, to paint uh, of, of how Christ loves his church. Now, Ephesians 5 is a mind-blowing fact. You know, everyone gets stuck on how we're supposed to submit to one another. And how, how, how can, how, why is only uh, the wife called to submit to the husband? Well, the wife is called to submit to the husband as we read, as the husband loves his wife as Christ loved the church. Our marriages are to be a picture of what God has done for us. When we look at a beautiful marriage, why are we so in awe of that? A godly, rich relationship. Why are we so in awe of that? Because it's, it's reflecting the glory of God. And divorce ruins that picture. But biblical teaching on divorce is complex because it recognizes that sometimes hardness of hearts may, may, may not be able to be fixed. It may have permanently damaged the relationship. You know, some marriages simply cannot be saved. And there may be circumstances under which divorce is the least of the bad options. A sad recognition of a painful reality. As Jesus points out in Matthew 19, idolatry is one of those reasons. Idolatry doesn't always end in divorce. I remember uh, growing up, a few times in my life, I have had people of, of spiritual uh, authority over me who have fallen in disgrace because of an affair. But I remember one of them where uh, the, they, the marriage stayed together. And I thought, what a picture, even as a youth, what a picture of God's amazing work of, of, of what he can do as he causes a heart to be repentive and the restoration that comes only through Jesus Christ. Even in their affair, the affair that happened destroyed that picture. But as God brought reconciliation, what an amazing testimony of what God can do. As God brings restoration. Now I'm thankful God doesn't leave us alone to make these types of decisions. God calls us not only to himself, but into a community. And in that community, there are other godly men and women who can walk with you, who can pray with you, who could cry with you, who can, who can encourage you during these hard times. But this leads us to the so what statement. Why does this even matter for you and for me? See, when we're looking at this passage and many others in the Old Testament, marriage is an important picture of the relationship between God and his people. And this is the real reality that is very clear in Malachi chapter 2, verse 11. 
but it's not just a picture that is used in the Old Testament. It is also a picture that we see in the New Testament, especially with Paul's words to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23. Marrying an unbeliever or divorcing your spouse without biblical grounds is therefore an assault on God's redemptive plan. This is why God makes it such a big deal. You know, divorce under most circumstances is a sin, but it's not an unforgivable sin. What amazes me about this is something that is so simple, but most but so profound. It is such an amazing truth. And it's the most amazing, profound truth for you and for me today. Look at this. Our hope, think about this, our hope rests on God's faithfulness, which always trumps our unfaithfulness. Regardless of how unfaithful I am, God always is faithful to me, his people. Israel was an unfaithful wife who regularly strayed from her covenant commitments over and over again. She deserved to be divorced and abandoned by a holy God. He was well within his rights to do that. Yet God pursued his wandering bride and wooed her back to him over and over and over again. If you're looking for a great prophet to read, that's a great and amazing picture. It's Hosea. It's specifically one to three. Hosea, God commands him to, to marry a prostitute who continuously wanders away. And God commands him to continue to go after her. What an amazing picture of what God has done for me and what he has done for you. What an amazing thing. Jesus himself is the great bridegroom who pursued his people at great personal costs. That's Ephesians 5, 25 to 26. We are saved by God's grace. It is a gift to us. But what is that gift? The gift of God's grace is the very his very presence with us. Sin separated us. God gives us the gift of his presence. We can have a relationship with God through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Christ died for our sins and rose again so that anyone who confesses with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior can have a relationship with the God who is loving. You may come to this time thinking that there is no greater screw-up than you. And I'm going to challenge you on that one. You may feel the guilt and the shame and the brokenness of, of a relationship, whatever that sin may be, but you can now hope, you can now you can know a hope that rests in God's faithfulness, which will always trump your unfaithfulness. You are saved by grace. It is a gift, and that gift is the presence of God. So fall on your knees before a holy God who is faithful to forgive those who repent. We live in a fallen world where I do can become I don't. And most families have been touched one way or another by divorce. It is painful. 
It is guilt-ridden. It is full of shame and sorrow. And whatever the reason is for the marriage to break apart, it is all of those emotions that make divorce a hard topic to talk about. But in this passage, we see a God who is loving, who is a loving Father, and He speaks to this area amongst other areas too, with words of warning and challenge, but also with grace and mercy. The most profound truth for you today is this idea that our hope rests in God's faithfulness, which always trumps our unfaithfulness. And even though God's people consistently and constantly were unfaithful, God remained faithful to them. How is that possible? Because as we saw in Malachi chapter 1, verse 2, I have loved you because of his sovereign love for his people, because he has chosen them. He continues to be faithful for them. Outside of that, that is impossible. It is God's sovereign choice and how he has elected you and me. What an amazing truth. Our hope rests in God's faithfulness, which always trumps our unfaithfulness. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you for this chance we have to continue to worship you through the opening of your word. And Lord, I pray that even in the midst of this hard topic, that we would see who you are and how you revealed yourself, that you do care deeply about our marriages. And I pray for each of our marriages, God. I pray that our marriages would reflect what you have done for us, that they would be a shine bright light. For those marriages that are struggling, Lord, I pray that by your Spirit, you would break through the hardness of those hearts, that you would bring reconciliation, that you would do what only you can do. But God, I pray that in all of this, that we would rest in the fact that our hope rests in your faithfulness, and that will always trump our unfaithfulness. God, may you be glorified. May you be honored. And amen.